Just watch Rocky, goddammit. <laughs> Who the hell hasn't seen Rocky? Never came up. Do you know how good it is? No, I'm sure it is. The most good. <laughs> Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Yo. And Jenna Ipcar. Hey. What we're doing today is we're going to be going around in like a triangle, essentially. We're each going to recommend each other a movie, and then we're going to jump in time. You guys at home aren't going to know much difference, but maybe a week or so is going to pass between the recording of this little beginning bit and the bulk of the episode where uh, each of us is then going to go and watch the movie, and then we're going to come back magically with the uh, editing of podcasting and have seen it. So uh, I'm going to start off with Jenna. I recommend that you go see Buffalo 66, finally, because you got to see that movie. All right, Jenna? Can I just say that all of these podcasts, I sit here and stare at Cody's poster of Buffalo 66 right above John's head. So I think it's time. I agree. Just I want to move from behind my head. <laughs> I want to switch it with Rocky or the protector. <laughs> right on. You can petition for that. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think you'll dig it. I think you, uh, it, it's funnier than you're, you might be anticipating. That's generally most people's reaction to the film. So uh, yeah, I think you'll get a kick out of it. It's a little weird. There's like a syrupy Lynch vibe to some parts of it. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Okay. I'm open to it. Yeah. So I'm giving her that DVD. And uh, Jenna, what do you recommend for John to watch? I'm recommending for John. Is it Rocky? Because I've seen Rocky. It's Rocky. Is it Rocky 2? I've also seen Rocky 2. Have you seen Rocky 3? Yeah. I saw part of it on TV the other day. Better than I remembered it. Yeah. Not bad. I think 4 is really when it starts to get shitty. So I kind of like, I don't think I give 3 enough credit. See, I like 5. I'm that guy. Yeah, I know. I hate 5. That's what I bring to the table. But we've talked about this. Yeah, you like the whole... Like, I get what you're saying. Like, the idea behind it is good. I don't think they stuck the landing at all. I'm recommending. Six. I'm recommending to John. Rocky? Gonna come over there, John. I'm recommending uh, The Silent Partner, which is an Elliot Gould stars in film from the 70s, Canadian bank heist movie. Ah, bank yeah, I'm heist. I'm into that. Bank yeah. heist from inside the bank. Well, I mean, it doesn't uh, have Stallone as a boxer. How else are you gonna get, get to the it. money? <laughs> they keep the money in the bank. Well... I won't elaborate then, but it's yeah, a, don't 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 spoil it because I like a, Elliot Gould. Yeah, this is a cute movie, um, and it's it'll shock you a little bit. It shocked me a little bit. Oh, I thought it was intelligent and it was fun, and I think you'll like it. Is Apollo Creed in it? Uh, no. <laughs> How about uh, oh, Sylvester shit, Stallone? Mm, Christopher Plummer. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and John, you have a recommendation for me. Yeah, this goes back. This is a vendetta I've had for a long time now. This oh, goes Jesus. back to when we all had that big fight about Clint Eastwood. Oh, and I found out that neither of you have seen Unforgiven, uh. which is, I would say, my second favorite movie of the '90s behind Fargo. In a lot of ways, probably the most complete western ever made. So mm. just watch Unforgiven. All right, and then don't talk to me until you do. Just I can loan you it. <laughs> watch it with you. All right. I just really need somebody yeah, else in this Blu-ray? room. No, just DVD. I'll try and get the Blu-ray. If I'm going to see it, I want to yeah, see it. Yeah, it's a nice looking movie. Yeah. yeah. I just really need someone else in this room to have seen Unforgiven. Okay. I, I want you guys to like hold hands and watch it. That's <laughs> what I want. Putting that out there. I'll do it. <laughs> Jenny right. picks Rocky. Oh, man. So say we all. Oh, well, watch d- it. just your life pick is yeah. Rocky. <laughs> just in, That's from God. That's uh, not from us. All right, God. All right. So... 
when we return, we will have seen all of these movies. How crazy is that? But yeah, it's real. That's what's going to happen right now. So see you soon. Hello, Smug Film fans. Did you know that Smug Film now has a voice mailbox? Just call the following phone number. 718395 and leave a question or a comment about the show along with your name, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening, and now, back to the show. And we're back. Alright, time travel. We have seen these movies now. Isn't that crazy? Alright, so I watched Unforgiven, finally. Haven't seen that one. It's weird that I haven't seen that one because it's so fucking good. Right? It's really good. It's so good. I don't know what my problem was. I I have this thing. I guess it's from my grandfather. He used to watch any Western whatsoever. And it was just on in the day in Cape Cod, just on the little TV. And when it's on a little TV, it's like even more like boring. And it, it, when you're a kid, you just can't get into that stuff. Yeah. And that really... Especially one like Unforgiven. That's not... That's an adult's movie. That steered me away from Westerns pretty hard. And I guess I just assumed Unforgiven was like that. And I don't know. But it, it's This fantastic. whole generation has that problem. If I were you, I would just start going back. And even the ones he watched then, you would probably feel differently about Absolutely. Now. The yeah, grand scope. Yeah. of Especially like those 50s Westerns, which is what Unforgiven is sort of a response to are so good. Yeah. Well, the the opening shot of Unforgiven conveys so much information in such a short amount of time. You and mean the so, text crawl? Yeah. And him just standing there in the distance and the sunset. Yeah. It's so beautiful and it conveys so much. And you can see, it's like that Kuleshov thing. You can see the acting from that distance yeah. just by the text rising. It's did you so figure effective. Out, by the way, it took me a few viewings to realize this, but did you figure out like in universe, I guess you would call it where that text came from. I, I have my theory. I mean, I guess it's the, the, the guy who is writing. Yeah. W.W. Beauchamp. Yeah. Okay. He stopped. My whole thing is he must've stopped what he was doing about English Bob and just written about William money. Right on. See, I like that as like a through line. I like that arc of that, uh, the writer character throughout the film. Yeah. I thought he was great. And fucking Dumbledore is so good. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's just unreal oh, yeah. in that movie. I thought you'd like it. Cause aren't you a big Deadwood fan? Oh, huge. And yeah. like this wrote the script on everything Deadwood was going to do. Yeah. This is really like, I think even visually, it's very much like it's, it's, it's the, uh, the setup for what Deadwood had time to do. The interiors. Yeah. I mean, the lighting and the cinematography in that whole film is just ferociously good. Eastwood, I think until around the mid 2000s had some of the best cinematography of anybody I'm aware of. Yeah, it got a little samey with him in like, I guess the past 10 years or so. He, I, I think for some reason, digital yeah, digital stuff is like a siren call for him that he can't quite get his head around. It's very by the books color correction. It yeah. just looks so samey. There are also like a lot of great like unknowns in this film too. Like, like I guess I, unknowns might not be the best word, but like just faces you haven't really seen since. Yeah. Like uh, the the Schofield kid. Oh, he's so good. He's that, fantastic. That scene where he's sitting under the tree with William Money when they're waiting for the woman to arrive. I think yeah. that might be my favorite scene in any Western, except for like maybe a handful in My Darling Clementine or Shane. I think that scene, I think the reason there hasn't been a good Western since Unforgiven is because after that scene, what can you do? 
He's you so know? he's tremendous, and I looked up his IMDb afterwards, and I was like, oh man, because he did, I think one other good thing. I forget the name of it. Like right after that, and then it was just like bit parts and yeah, when direct to video stuff and just lesser films. And um, I mean, lesser films is the trouble <laughs> with Unforgiven is it's almost every film. Yeah. And Anna Thompson, who played the uh, the the whore who got her face cut. She's really good. She's, I think she was in Heaven's Gate as well. Yes. And they were, and then it, again, like very small bit parts since then. Also like, I mean, Hackman has no shortage of roles, but like, how did it take that long for somebody to give Hackman that role? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, you guys got to talk about Hackman. Hackman, tremendous. I he's, mean, yeah, he's probably the best in the movie. There's two films going on in that film. There's the Hackman film and there's the Eastwood film and yeah. they're both equally good. So let me throw my foot. And and right in right now. Throw your foot. Throw my foot in my mouth Don't as throw I say your that. Foot. <laughs> <laughs> throw a shoe, not a foot. No, my whole foot is that. So Unforgiven, good movie, really good movie, very good. I like the Gene Hackman movie. I don't like the Clint Eastwood movie. Right on. I can see that the Clint Eastwood movie is very much, I think, not your type of movie. It's just saccharine, and that's the thing about I like Clint Eastwood. Saccharine. I actually like as as a. Uh, I know you're gonna punch <laughs> me. I, I like him as a, an actor way more than I like him as a director. You've gone over this before. I don't. I don't see that in the end, though. I mean, what he does is not saccharine. There's always this like. <sighs> I think this is, you're just, this is like how some people are with Gibson. Like, I feel like there's just something you're never going to be able to get past yeah, it is. with it, him. It's his, whenever his like sense of humor movie-ish. shines through, I'm always like, put it back. <laughs> like, I, I just don't care yeah. for it. Though I have to say the there's ending. there's nothing you can do with that, you know? There, yeah, no, it's it. It's just, it's just me. Like, I have a problem with it. But the other thing is the, the I have to say the scrolling text at the end made me laugh out loud. Because it end doesn't it end with like, and then he turned into a nerf herder and no one heard from him since. Like it's something no, really it's dopey. more than that. It's more than that. No, it's super dopey. It's no, like, it's not dopey. It's it, he. Um, it goes back to the beginning with talking about his wife. Yeah, yeah. It addresses that again, which I think was it talks a good about how bookend. nobody could figure out why his wife, who was so promising, exactly. would have married him. Right. And then there's a little bit about they think they're pretty sure he was somewhere in like San Francisco at a dry goods store or something. Mm-hmm. But that was really just about That's nobody what knows what happened to him. But that's really what happened to those people. Sure. Right. That's a real thing. You know, they would, that was the call of the West. You could get away from killing someone and end up running a dry goods store somewhere. <laughs> and his whole that's arc what's so was, great. That he was wanted, the best part. but that's what the beginning was. That's who he was at the beginning. He was a farmer. Right. Yeah. He was like, he also like farmed crap. He was a dung farmer. Yeah. He couldn't, <laughs> yeah, he was a shitty farmer. And I'm sure he has a shitty dry goods owner because the unspoken thing is that there was only one thing he was ever any good at. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, murdering Murder, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's there's tremendous editing throughout the whole film. It's just like it's one of those movies you could teach editing on because there's yeah. not a, there's not a frame that's out of place or unnecessary. One of my favorite sequences is um, there's a part where he's um, he's shaving and then it cuts to him like looking out at the grave and then it cuts to him at the grave and it's cut so economically and it yeah. tells a story in just three shots. It, there's there's editing like that throughout the film, but that's I guess that's my favorite example of it's like all right we're we're telling a story through somebody looking at somebody something yeah. and somebody going somewhere and it's it's more than that and it says everything and there's barely any acting in it he's just shaving and looking and then he's there that's a big part of why the western is a genre that I've always gone to the bat for and a big part of why it's one of my favorites and why I think 
also a big part of why I think it's underrated is because I think it's the absolute best venue for um, purely visual storytelling. Yeah. And a lot of the, I mean, the, the great example, the most famous example is in My Darling Clementine when um, Henry Fonda is sitting on the porch and you think he's guarding the town and then he starts playing, like kicking his legs on the chair because he's really happy because he had met Clementine. Mm. And like, it's, it's just a genre that is built on the idea of these unspoken visual cues. And uh, the difference between Unforgiven and a lot of the worst movies from the 90s, because the 90s, I think, were a very bad time for Westerns. But Unforgiven is just so good at visually telling you its story. There's even, a, even Tombstone, which I really like, I think was not very good at that. Right. There's another thing I really dug, which was that weather like comes through and it hasn't hit all the characters yet. So the weather hits yeah. certain characters at a certain time and then hits other characters at a later time. And you really get a sense of distance. Yeah. I really, really dug that. And that's a, that's the kind of thing that's like, it's like, why isn't that in more movies? Why yeah. isn't, why don't you see weather travel in movies more often? I'm trying to think of other ones you did. I think uh, Duel in the Sun, you get that effect really big. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like these very wide shots and you can see a thunderstorm in the distance. And then like, a few scenes later, there's a thunderstorm. And I think She Wore a Yellow Ribbon does it too. Or maybe not that one, but one of Ford's cavalry trilogy, I remember. No, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon because it was in color. It's the same thing. You see a storm travel across the prairie, which is, again, another example of that, that great visual storytelling you don't see a lot in other genres. Yeah. I wonder if maybe you don't see that kind of weather traveling because if people aren't from the, like, midwest or from the south or from areas like that because like in new york it's harder to yeah see that whereas yeah, i think like, you visually just don't have the opportunity and you just but you don't even think about it like you know yeah. when I, I remember driving through nebraska once and seeing like oh look there's a storm coming you yeah. know like but like you know an hour away from us and it was just so bizarre yeah you know and it was like so that's definitely i think that's like a great detail of like you know someone clearly paying attention or someone who knows someone who grew up mm. in that sort of setting yeah, it's the nice thing about the genre. You also just get that sense of space that you can't really get in any other genre without sort of forcing it. That sense of just like part of the reason I love Westerns is they're almost minimalist theater. The exteriors, you know, mm. you have one person and just a vast emptiness. Right. Yeah. Or ship movies are yes, other favorite ship genre. Movies then too, you yeah. also <laughs> see weather traveling. You see that and you have that same sort of minimalist theater sense. Yeah. Yeah. Leone was really good at that sense of just like people on an empty stage yeah and those that's why i think a lot of that the plain exteriors are the parts you remember most from those movies like uh the beginning of um once upon a time in the west like there's some great interior sets in that movie like the train and the um the saloon but what you really remember is the the people waiting at the train station mm. and you remember just the blankness of it all i love how um death is treated differently throughout the film where it has this quality of numbness towards the end where you're yeah. kind of numb to death and it's just kind of, you don't even think about it, but then a couple scenes before, maybe half hour before death is just this like this horrible, horrible thing. Like the whole bring him to water right. scene. Yeah. That scene's just, it's just so like, you don't see that in, in yeah. films too often. Like it, death rem- is, the only thing it reminds me of is if unforgiven is my favorite movie of the nineties, my second favorite is probably Fargo. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the only other movies where you can really feel that sense of it just being like some horrible 
like lasting thing. It's like an illness that they've like uh, yeah. come upon. Like, like the, it's it's difficult to die. Yeah, it yeah. takes effort. It takes yeah. it's exhausting. Did you notice the uh, either of you noticed the dedication in the movie, which is very much along those lines? I think no, I don't think so. He dedicated it to Sergio Leone and Don Siegel because they were the ones who taught him how to direct and how to make his career. Mm. Leone, who did the Man with No Name trilogy, and Don Siegel, who did. Um, Dirty Harry, right? Yes. No. Don yeah. Siegel, who did Dirty Harry. I forgot the name of it for a second. And like those movies, the Man With No Name trilogy and the and the Dirty Harry movies have this very different sense of dying. You, you kind of get this sense of a man who built his career on like the fun that it can be to like bang, bang, kill someone in a movie who's now looking back and thinking, well, maybe that was not great. But also, you know, you can't. What I like about Unforgiven versus other sort of more polemic movies of its kind is it never sort of shies away from the allure of, you know, the old West gunfight thing. Mm -hmm. Like it still is kind of like it's tempting, but it it also doesn't hide from the fact that it it really is ugly. I also really love the, uh, the angel of death stuff, the, the worms and, you know, it's the whole thing of like, usually it's like show don't tell, but I'm so glad that they just told that because he (laughs) tells it so effectively and it, the imagery goes right into your head and you just feel so awful from it. Like he's he, he's not doing too well not to give anything away in the film as he's talking about this. Yeah. And he just acts it so well that just all the imagery that you can tell is swirling around in his like uh, hallucinatory mind at that point. You just see some of it. Yeah. There's a lot of that in the movie. There's yeah. a lot of that just like evocative like sentences that go really far. Yeah. I mean, I still think... If I were going to write my book about the um, history of the Western, I would probably call it Deserves Got Nothing to Do With It. Because mm. that's just like such a summation of post-Vietnam American look at the West. Yeah, there's some great little tiny lines in the film. Like, I love the hang the carpenter thing. Yeah. when I mean, it's such a great little joke. My favorite in it is um, you're talking about the Queen again on Independence Day. <laughs> That delivery is just every time I see it, I think is the funniest thing. Yeah, I wrote just that that kick right between on Independence (laughs) Day. I wrote that another one. There was a come on, Bill, it's raining when it comes to drinking. He's like, drink because it's raining. I just love those little tiny lines. They're not going to be like the, the, you know, the top hundred greatest movie quote lines, but they they stick out and they're they're so much fun. And also Dumbledore's delivery of why not shoot the president? (laughs) It's just so funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I really, really dug that movie. Thank you for uh, recommending it. And yeah, make, I'm glad you liked it. Forcing I'm glad you both me, liked it. Basically forcing me to, to actually watch it. It's an uphill struggle with Westerns, and I never understand why, because, man, when they're good, they're good in a way that other movies don't have the opportunity to be good. I think mm. it is what Cody said. I think a lot of people, like, their your exposure to them are, like, the sort of those TV serial yeah. ones that can be good, but yeah. I mean, you know, if all you're seeing is rawhide, I can understand. Maybe yeah. Plus why there's like, this Meh. sort of like, you get the sense that they're all the same. Even I've read a lot of defenses of Westerns that like claim that they're all the same, which is completely untrue. There, right. There's probably more directorial difference between Westerns than any other movies I'm really aware of. But I, I think if you like at a glance, they very much look like that. There are certain genres that, that have that barrier like that where yeah. they're so iconic that everyone just assumes they're one thing. It's like with martial arts movies, there's yeah. there's 36 chambers of Shaolin and there's the protector and sure, they couldn't yeah. be farther apart, but they're both martial arts films. Yeah, and then in the middle, there's duel to the death, which is like the most insane. Yeah. That's like a, 
like if it were a Western, it'd be an acid Western. <laughs> like people forget they even did martial arts like acid movies. Oh, yeah. I'll say this about Westerns and in particular Unforgiven, which I would say Unforgiven is probably in my top 25 mu- movies, period. Mm-hmm. And like if I were going to do like a film course about like everything you need to know about how to make a movie, Unforgiven would be one of those ones that you just you take apart because you can learn how to build a perfect movie through mm-hmm. Unforgiven. And I think part of that and part of the reason I'm drawn to Westerns in general is because there is no genre that I'm aware of that dealt so consistently and so directly with death. So you're almost inherently dealing with interesting and touchy subjects, mm. which is why when they're bad, they're just god awful. But when they're good, there's an incredible honesty and an incredible, like, cutting, sometimes, um, like, really scathing insight in them that you don't, you do not see anywhere else that I'm aware of. Like, there's this one. It was, uh, I think, 54 or 55, and it's sort of considered a second-tier Western um, called Wichita, where uh, there's a part where, like, Wyatt Earp is bringing this woman up to her bed and showing her, you know, like, the hotel room and everything. And he just points to the window, and as casually as he's walking out, and is like, don't stand too close to the window because you might get shot and killed at night. (laughs) And he leaves, and it's just this, like, very little line. Yeah. But, you know, there's, like, a lot of stuff like that floating around in the genre that's really... It, it speaks to something, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's like kind of like an honesty in it. It sounds a, almost inner city, that line. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's something that you you should see in more movies considering how often people die in movies. Mm-hmm. But the Westerns really, I think, more than anything, they pushed. Like, what does it mean to die? What does it mean to be killed? What is it worth? You know, like, what is a life worth? What is a community worth? What do you build a community on? Because that's the other whole sort of structural basis of the genre is they're about the buildings of towns and the buildings of settlements. Right. So inherently the the thematic ground you're dealing with is what are these things worth and what's the value of them? Hmm. And you can watch that evolve over time. You can watch different individuals' conceptions of that. Like the concept of civilization was very different to John Ford than it was to Anthony Mann or to Howard Hawks. And... Unforgiven, I think, is probably the culmination and, to me, the end of that discussion. I feel like since Unforgiven, we haven't had anywhere to go in that genre. Because Unforgiven, like, what do you do after the end of that movie? That feels like the end of a genre to me. That's, Mm. you know, the last chapter of all the different ideas of what this stuff means, you know, like, what, what this stuff is worth, what these myths are, where these myths came from. You close the book with the end of Unforgiven, which... Gee, that's final. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's a good Western after Unforgiven? Well, Deadwood, I adore. Sure, but, but it's not... televised, and it's it's a Western, but it's just... It's Shakespeare. It's a, it's a whole bunch of other things, too. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, dealing with the same myth. It's not dealing with yeah. the myth of American expansion, which is like the, the hallmark of what the, the Westerns were. It's the, it's the concept of westward expansion, and I mean... I don't know any other genres that are just called by like a location. Like that says so much that you can't mm. move them. You know, right. there's, it's not like there's an Eastern. Yeah. There, there's a genre called the Eastern, which is the Soviet version of the Western. Oh, really? Which is, some of them are really good. They're from huh. the, usually from the sixties and they're all set in Siberia, which is why they're called the Easterns. But those are very, as great as they often are, very different movies. Mm. And like the good, the bad and the weird, which they said was a Korean Western, 
amazing movie, one of my favorites, but it's not really a Western in the same way. Right. It's visually a Western, but it's like neo-noir, you know, like it's not coming from the same thematic starting place. I think you're forgetting also uh, Shanghai Noon. A classic, a, certainly. And know. Shanghai Nights, another classic. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like you can you can pull titles out. I mean, you could make a case that No Country for Old Men is what, one, but like, sure. you know, realistically what you're dealing with as a cultural flashpoint died at the end of Unforgiven. Did you like the proposition? No. What I really did, don't like the what proposition. What didn't you like about it? It felt like it had less to say than it was saying to me. Mm. It was beautifully shot. Yeah. Um, but like the characters, I mean, it was all stuff I had seen done better and more elegantly in movies like Unforgiven for so long. Yeah, you know? that makes total sense. There's some striking fucking visuals in that movie, and I, I yeah. wish they, they amounted to more. I wish uh, the proposition was told from the point of view of the woman, which I think actually, if you want to revitalize the West, the, the concept of the Western, start doing that. Hmm. Start telling the stories from like the point of view of like the women left behind or like the saloon keepers or the dry goods stores owners or, you know. Or just move it to space. Yeah. We just need a <laughs> like good outland. Yeah. We need a good dry goods movie. We do. We're waiting for the great dry goods store movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I Shane that. had a lot in it, but you know, it was, it was secondary. The closest we have to a good dry goods thing is a big top peewee where he goes into the store <laughs> and demands that the guy make him a cheese sandwich. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema, and I just wanted to give it a quick shout out because it's a fantastic dry goods scene. It's an underrated movie, too. Big <laughs> it's top a super un- underrated, yeah. All right, so so John, Jenna picked you out a uh, a film. So I made yes. the mistake of of picking a film that uh, not so much that I felt so passionately about as John clearly does about Unforgiven. I just picked something I thought John would like. Well, you're right. I did like it. Nice. She picked out for me the Silent Partner with Elliot Gould which I'd never heard of, which is surprising because I really like Elliot Gould. And it was cool because it was like a Canadian movie. Yeah. But with um, Elliot Gould in it and with um, Christopher Plummer in it out of nowhere. Yeah. But then like mixed in with all that was it was like small town Canada, like Toronto when it was like a small city. Oh, and nice. John Candy just shows up. Yeah, he has like a like background camera. Yeah, John Candy in like a dramatic role is just like a dude in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like a very interesting time and place, I think, to have captured in a movie. Yeah, that's a, it's a great... That's what I thought you'd like about it. It's like, it's this great little bank heist movie. Yeah, and the, the premise is really good, too. You're, you're right. So it's it's like, it's been a while since I've watched it, to be honest. But like, he's a bank worker, bank teller, who then is uh, being told, uh, you know, I guess the guy comes to rob the place and says, I'm going to steal the money tomorrow. You better have everything ready. No, no, no. What happens is this guy comes to rob the bank, but the first time around... He can't do it because there's like a, a kid who's trying to talk uh, to him. Yeah. Mm. So he's like, he's got all this attention on him. So the guy leaves. Yeah. And then Elliot Gould, who's the bank teller, knows that this guy's coming back to rob the bank. So what he does is he takes most of the money out of the till and puts it in his lunchbox. And then when the guy comes to rob the bank, he just gives him like a little bit. And then everybody's convinced the guy stole all the money. It was like $40,000 is what Elliot Gould took. And he gave the guy like 2000 or something. Right. And then the news comes plan. out yeah. that, you know, like 40,000 or 42,000 was taken and the crook finds out. He goes, where the fuck was the rest of it? Yeah. I like that premise. It's a great premise. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good sort of battle of wits because there's such different actors Right. Gould and Plummer, and they're both so good in their own ways. And it gets really, it takes this 
crazy twist because it starts off as like a sort of like yeah clever bank heist yeah and it's like and a little gets, goofy at the beginning yeah and it gets super violent yeah oh, wow. super fucking violent. that one scene is like wrenching like there's a part where the I, I had to turn away yeah yeah it's it, because it, it <laughs> sneaks up on you. It's intense. It gets creepy too. Yeah. Like Christopher Most Plummer. Most of that like, is Plummer, especially near the end. He really starts to like, just fucking go for it. Yeah. It's terrifying. It, it, you get really into it. So it's like, you started off like, yeah, this is clever. And then you're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it was a little odd though. Like it had a lot of the great hallmarks of the seventies, which is that sort of stuff. Then it had some of the bad stuff of the seventies. Yeah. It had a lot of just lame like, nudity. Yeah. Like the every woman in it's got to just rip off all her clothes. And apparently yeah, they for all five seconds. just want to bang the hell out of Elliot Gould. Y'all right. are, for y'all no are reason that's about given. This? It's, it's just annoying. It's just like, it comes out of nowhere. Like, yeah. And it drags down it. some scenes. Yeah. And like, it feels sleazy. It starts there to feel is. sleazy. It fe- you know what it is? The movie feels like, it feels very horny. The movie. Yeah, it which does. is like a thing you get with some 70s movies where you're right. just like, all right, take a lap and then come back to the script because this is just <laughs> fucking calm down. <laughs> yeah. No, they feel, I just, it feels like, you know, well, we can do it, so we should do it. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, well, all right, like, I guess, you know, yeah, yeah. it's real shocking, but it isn't. Yeah. But yeah. But like, other than that, I mean, it probably would be like right now, I'd say like it's a seven and a half stars out of 10. You'd probably raise it to eight if you just cut like five minutes mostly of just naked people out of it. Because <laughs> yeah. like there's that bit in the middle where it starts to, where he's going on like dates and everything and it's not really relating. And you're just like, just fucking move on with it. Yeah, yeah. that sounds weird. But I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that it wasn't a good movie because it really is so fucking fun. It's fun. It's and just then it takes good. this turn and it stops being fun and you're like really caught up in it. Yeah. Apparently it was based on a Swedish movie. Did you hear that? It's like a no, remake. No, I didn't know that. I've hmm. been trying to find the original. I haven't had much luck. Huh. But there are a few Swedish movies from the 60s and the 70s where um, you could tell the filmmakers were mad that the only thing anybody thought of their movies was Bergman. So they tried to make these like really aggressive action movies. And sometimes they're like really good. Huh. There's one called um, The Man on the Roof, I think it was called, which is like a Swedish like cop thriller. And there's like a helicopter sniper and like all these battles through like, like inner cities and stuff. And you're like, what is this? This is so good. And I think that's the tradition that this movie came from. Yeah, that like Swedish, like sense. Swedish um, anti-Bergman approach. I feel like that would almost even, I don't know why, but it would explain like this. There's like a Santa Claus yeah. in the movie. And that seems like a Swedish choice. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's a little, it's also like a little out of like left field. But I don't know. Yeah, I, that movie, I just thought like, why didn't I know about this? It's yeah. just like a super fun, you know, everyone's good in it. Yeah. And when it gets, it gets really creepy and it gets super, like super violent. Like even as I say that, and like you, if you go out and watch it, you'll be like, oh, it's not that bad. It's <laughs> fine. And then you'll be like, yeah, it couldn't be. Oh my God. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> it Cause it lulls you. It's very good at lulling you. I want to see this one. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I maybe John can, can give you his coffee yeah. or something. It sounds, yeah. it sounds also like something that would get remade too. Like now. Yeah. With Sam Worthington and they would ruin it. <laughs> That's the thing. It doesn't, I think it actually doesn't feel dated really. Besides there's a couple of, as John said, a couple of seventies lulls for the most part, it's pretty much up to date. Like, mm. It's just because it, because I think maybe because it takes place in like Canada <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I don't think it's that. Canada. I think it's just, you know, what, what dates about that, you know, the no, premise just, is so universal. I mean, you can right. put that premise in like 
ancient Egypt or whatever and change it around a little bit, and it's probably still fine. Oh, actually, but you, you know, know what? anywhere it, we have banks, that premise kind of works. It couldn't be remade. I feel like I was thinking about this, and I, this is totally off topic, but like that idea of like how bank heists are so much harder now just because of technology. Right. And it's a bummer. And then you, you kind of lose the bank heist movies without them being like, Super there was crazy just a bank intense. robber in California like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, but this shit still happens. It they still, still happens. Rob banks. I mean, like it makes me feel good when I read that. Like it really does. I'm <laughs> yeah, like, I good. can assure people good are still robbing banks. It's fine. It's as long okay. as they're not like. But in movies, they're always like, it's like Batman. It's like people blowing up banks with their like freaking tanks, and you're well, like, I'm, no. I'm sure they felt that way in the 70s. You know, the people who remembered the great bank robberies of the Prohibition era. I think of I mean, like, that's truly the heyday of bank robberies. Yeah, as, as a stand up comedian, John Mulaney has a joke about that. Like that back in the day when you could just like write your name on the wall. Yeah. And then like leave. <laughs> they couldn't catch you. <laughs> yeah. Like that was definitely. And then, you know, those guys were probably like, boy, I miss the days where you could be a, a highway bandit. Right. And just hold your <laughs> single shot, you know, breech loading pistol and hold up Barry Lyndon in the woods. Yeah. So you know, America is just like a series of nostalgia for robberies past. I mean, certainly seems that way. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Stander? Stander? You might like that too, but maybe I'll save it for another thing. It's another bank. It's a, a, a true based on a true story. And I forget now, Australian bank robber. Oh, I'm, I'm way into Australian thrillers. I don't know that it's an Australian movie, but it's, it's based on it's it's. Oh, no. that's that one with Thomas Jane. It's a South, uh, South my boy African. T. Jane. South African. Yeah, I remember Ooh. hearing about that. It's I good. love Tommy Jane. It's good. Right, I'll get in on that. I'll, I'll watch anything with Thomas so- Jane in South it. South Africa, right? Including that piece of shit Arrested Development episode. It's got <laughs> Thomas Jane in it. I'm I'm invested. Yeah, it's South Africa. Yeah, because it's it's like about apartheid and shit. Yeah. If this were remade, it would totally be like a Thomas Jane in the lead. It would be, you know, like a nice paternal white man in the lead. Which is what was kind of cool about this one and so 70s about it is that uh, Elliot Gould is just kind of a piece of shit in it. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. He's, and he's also like weirdly very shy in it, which I've never seen him as in anything else. Yeah. Probably because he's playing a Canadian in it and not a Brooklyn guy. Yeah. Which is that's, that, that's like there's a big part of the charm is the Canadian aspect. It really is. Canadian cinema in general, I think, is underappreciated. I think it gets lost in sort of the... Like, I, I think a lot of great Canadian movies get remembered as great American movies. But, like, they have, a, I think, <laughs> like a strong... Like comedians, I think, too. Yeah. Jenna, what did you watch? <laughs> I watched because Cody assigned me Buffalo 66. You don't remember? We just time-traveled. <laughs> well, I thought maybe they'd have forgotten. <laughs> and uh, the poster of which stares at me every time I record this. That's right. Right next to Cody's poster of Brown Bunny. That's right. So I've, I've actually never seen any of his movies. I've seen parts of Brown Bunny enough to not want to see it. And then... <laughs> oh, come on. Maybe one day. Maybe one day when you assign it to me. Even but, Ebert did a turnaround on that one. Yeah. I mean, I don't like it, but Herzog, Ebert does now. Herzog loves it. Mm. A lot of people love it. Meh. But, uh, what do you I mean, was, meh? You haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm hardcore judging it. But Vincent, so Vincent Gallo, I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> He's Scope looking me out. right in the eye. All right. Buffalo 66. One of your favorite films, right? Yeah. Yeah. Top five. Easily. Top three. Maybe. I don't know. I have mixed emotions about it. Now, on, I, I think I liked it. I do, I do think I liked it. It's, it. Now, it's super stylistic and, mm-hmm. and he has super strong voice. So I like that part of it. You're like, this is clearly this guy's work, you know, like and you can see the influences, but they're they're like they're more collage than they are. Like uh, they're not like rips at any point. You're never like, oh, obviously, like you just like you can pick out little things that, you know, 
kind of make what he is and where his influences are. And I like that about it. I thought yeah. that was really great. I liked his character. You know, they have this really like, I thought he was like a big coward. He's like mm-hmm. a this big pussy. He like walks around, you know, like, and that's the thing is you learn just everything really about that him. as an insult lately, by the way. What? Coward? coward. I've been calling people a coward a lot lately. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Online just, or in person? Both. It's just so cutting. <laughs> Well, but he, I mean, his character is because I mean, he's he this, is, he's totally a coward. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm really, I'm really into guy. calling people coward lately. Yeah, it's great. It's a great word. And then, you know, you meet his parents, you see exactly where he grew up and you're like, ah, oh, poor dude. Like, all right, fine. I, I get it. But then he's also just kind of an asshole. So you're like, whatever. Well, he just got out of prison. Yeah. For a really lame reason. Yeah. You know, like everything about Wait, his life what did is he lame. Go to prison for? I can't remember. He goes to prison because he takes the fall for uh, yeah, like he he bets like ten k oh, yeah, yeah, on the yeah, yeah. Buffalo money, Bills yeah. or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since high school, so I'm uh, so not like, really there on this one. I'm trying to think of of like what I really liked about it. I think it was just that his character. I thought like his arc is very natural. You know, like everything makes sense. Like you you literally learn everything you could possibly learn about this guy in two hours. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, he, it's always interestingly shot. I like the dinner table scene where you're kind of getting everybody's perspective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's his big Ozu moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. You're like, you, you're like, oh, these are like just good little details or like, you know, I, I really like how uh, the lights will, you know, dim and then everyone, someone has a spotlight that mm-hmm. happens several times. You know, like I like these sort of like artistic flourishes. And then I like the, the character as, you know, again, someone you don't really see in movies that often. You know, yeah. he, he's a real anti-hero in the sense that he's really like, he's just really a loser. But, you know, and, and you can almost feel for him, but you don't really want to, you know, mm. like at least I didn't. I didn't really feel any point where I was like, ah, oh, but give the guy a break. I was like, nah, this guy's just total loser. <laughs> but, um, you know, he sort of redeems himself in the end, I suppose. I think on the same side, what, what kind of annoyed me about the movie was that you don't learn anything about Christina Ricci. Mm-hmm. She's completely blank and it sucked. It was why like, did that, why did that suck though? Because she was 50% of that film. And, and she's a better actor, but she's <laughs> the, she's a straight man. I would, I would say of the, of the two, but then like, you know, his, what was his friend's name that he kept, who wants to be called Rocky goon yeah goon kevin corrigan the actor you even learn more about him than you do about christina ricci and that annoyed me i was like this dude has like 10 minutes of screen time and i know more about his life than i do about christina ricci who just just seemed like she came out of nowhere and then made these like unrealistic choices i could see why maybe she stuck around because she's young and naive she says in the movie that she's 26 but she clearly isn't and i know christina ricci was like 18 or something when they shot it Mm mm-hmm so like you get the sense that like, you know, like, all right, this is like some, some interest, some strange girl. And like, there, I, the other thing is I know girls like her, you know, so oh, it's not yeah. that she's unrealistic. I, I can absolutely see, you know, people that I know in her, but I'm projecting and like, okay, I guess that could also be the choice is like, you know, she is what you want her to be, but that seems silly compared to Vincent Gallo, who you, who you cannot, you can't do that with because they tell you everything. Does it feel lazy? Yeah, I mean, it just felt like they didn't, they just totally dropped the ball with her and then it kind of made her off into like this sort of like, you know, puppet, which sucks. I've been finding that with a lot of movies lately that I've been going back to from that era. It feels like that was a bad time for men writing about women in movies. Like it feels like I think it, it, it typically is a bad time. <laughs> I mean, probably, but particularly then, like I think people were very open to the idea of like women as like a mythical creature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think you, uh, 
I don't know about particularly then. I mean, like certainly uh, I think that there've, there've been always movies that, that do their best to like combat that. And, but I think that's more like the default half the time, you know? Sure. Like, but this was, you know, this, this was particular like one. Yeah, the, she the seems garden like a mythical... state era, the whole like, Oh sure. Yeah. The yeah, women the... saving men era. Right. Of, I, of American I wouldn't lump it in with garden state because I, I feel I think like it's better than garden state. Oh yeah. But... I mean, well, by far most things. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but he never, you know, he never asks her. He never gives her the opportunity. He's 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 basically talking over her the right. entire film. Right. So it's it's you know as much as you wanted to know about her, it's you know by design he doesn't know much about her and he's projecting. It's, right. It, it's a film about him projecting onto her and uh, never really giving her a chance to speak and and just kind of steering her throughout this uh, this imposed relationship that he has with her. Which, which again, like it makes sense, which doesn't, that's why I can't, I couldn't hate the movie, which I don't like. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. I liked it. But then like, even in Lolita, Lolita fights back against uh, eventually, you know, like, and that's kind of what I wanted. I was Do you like, think that's a story worth telling the story of a man who just talks over a woman? I think it's realistic. And then it ends. Well, I'm not asking if it's realistic. I mean, personally, do you think that's a story worth printing all that film for? <laughs> I feel like I can sense your judgment in the question. Um, but no, I'm not. Ju- I'm, I'm that's at, like a I'm, genuine I mean, question. it's a leading question, but it's a question because I <laughs> you think know, it's, for, for this, I actually it's I the thought, big question of the whole thing. You know, I thought that he he really does project. He, he presents a character that you don't really see that often because sure. you see all of his flaws, and he's a he's just like a, I don't like him at all. And it, it, and in that sense, it was interesting because it, you don't see that so often. Usually, mm. that guy is maybe an anti-hero, but like, you know, there's something redeeming about him or he has a heart right. of gold in the end. When he decides not to kill this guy, he's going to kill the whole movie. You don't really think, think he's any better. In fact, you think yeah. like he went even nuts, more nuts, but you know what? At least he didn't kill a guy. You know, it reminds me of all these mass shootings that happen all the time. It's like, yeah. well, this is the type of dude that, right. that comes to that. And, you know, thankfully I think there are those guys that think about it and then stop themselves. And, you know, <laughs> Thank like thanks guys like don't do that you know. Well, but, the, the reason I ask is because my thing with that movie was always I thought it was well made and wonderfully acted and everything. But when it was over, and I still feel this way, I thought, well, that wasn't really worth making. <laughs> you know, like I never felt like I got any anything out of it. It didn't except change sort my of life. A, a glimpse of some wiener. You don't see his dick in that, do you? I think no, he was I mean, referring to yeah, him, as, him as a wiener. As uh, a wiener. Brown I mean, Bunny is definitely the, the dick movie. <laughs> the movie is kind of just, a, yeah, it's completely about him. You know, and then like Vincent Gallo, I mean, I actually know more about him as a guy than I know him. Hmm. As, I know his movies. So there, I kind of have that background too about how right. I think after this movie called Christina Ricci like a total cunt or something. Apparently she was, she's drunk on set and like she, she like peed on the floor in protest like because like some place didn't let her use the bathroom. Like there, she was like a brat on set. But she, she was, was like also a, like 18. Yeah. And like, you know, I feel like that, that almost, I wanted that. Yeah. I wanted that in the film. Like, why don't, why don't you yeah, just throw that true. stuff in? Yeah. Like, you know, like, cause that's how someone would act, you know, not all 18 year olds, you maybe pee on the floor or whatever the hell. Though it's interesting because like she came back to those comments apparently and was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, yeah, she denies it, but, you but know, like, well, not even angrily. That's yeah. why it was interesting. It was just like, huh? <laughs> yeah. So like, I'm, I wonder if the truth is probably somewhere in between. I don't doubt that she was difficult, 
but he also seems like he's like probably an overreactor crybaby like his character. Well, he's he's actually like a he's a very candid, like trustworthy dude when it comes to that sort of stuff. Like he he details a lot of like stuff that that would be libelous, you know, like he 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 did a commentary for Buffalo 66 that the studio would never release because they said it was too libelous, but it was basically just him breaking down like everything that he went through and the Brown Bunny commentary that, that was able to be released, but only in Japan, like it got buried to that. It didn't have a North American release. Why is it always Japan? <laughs> well, they love them. And uh, you know what I mean? Like whenever there's something that like never really been seen, awesome. it's always <laughs> yeah. Peru or Japan. Yeah. And the commentary for that, he talks about how like, uh, Kirsten Dunst was supposed to do it, but then she backed out for this, this, this reason. Why not a writer was supposed to do it for this, this, this reason. Like he goes very much into detail, just kind of just telling the facts. Like he's, he's just a very, like he's got no reason to lie about that stuff because he's, he's not a person who's interested in like the, uh, the gossipy aspects of Hollywood. Like he's just, he's, he's mostly like a, um, I don't know how much you know about him. Like He's really just like a music nerd. Like he he really likes vintage sound equipment and he just like obsessively buys that on eBay and just kind of hermits himself. And now he makes films, but he doesn't even release them because he doesn't like critics like being dicks and audiences being dicks. See, but then so that he attitude... Make, like he makes films and then doesn't release them. He's just like this very like hold up person that doesn't really have a reason to like... He, he doesn't like the whole engaging with Hollywood thing. But yeah. there's something that there's I don't I don't find truth in people like that. Like I'm not doubting. I don't think he like is is hanging out lying. But I feel like sometimes you get people like that have that kind of introverted aspect to them that maybe just don't they they tell their version of the truth kind of thing. You know, it's like you know, like I'm trying to think of other like J.D. Salinger. I, you know, like I'm sure his version of or actually the Marlon Brando. So I saw that. Listen to me, Marlon, mm-hmm. which was a, a documentary that just came out about. um Marlon Brando, who recorded apparently like some like 300 hours of himself talking to himself about himself on just audio recorders over the the span of his whole life. (laughs) You're, you're the next one. And it's a great movie because it's, you know, like it's all these stuff where it's a half like therapeutic tapes he made for himself or like notes and other things are like, you know, just, you know, it seemed like the, the documentary he directed about himself for himself, you know, and it's interesting And I think that there's a lot that's, you know, Marlon Brando, who is famously super, super difficult on set. You know, here you have the guy talking about like, no, I just wanted the best for something. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, he talks about Apocalypse Now and he goes into about how like, um, you know, I showed up on set and the script was terrible. So I rewrote the whole thing. I showed up with hours and hours of recorded footage uh, or recorded a dialogue and I had everything I, you know, like, and as I got there, Coppola told me he didn't know how to end the film. I worked with him for days and we ended the film. And then it cuts to this like sort of news, uh, you know, uh, clipping of like Coppola saying like, Brandon showed up like, you know, 50 pounds overweight. We had to shoot him in shadow. Oh, right. what an asshole, you know? And, and then it cuts to Brando's talking again. He goes like, fuck Coppola. Fuck him. I came and I changed. I told him how to shoot it and I told him how to write it and I fixed his whole film and, and I did it. That's the trouble with Brando. He thought he was the best one. But then, I mean, like if you anyone's seen the Apocalypse Now documentary that came out, you know, Brando was being paid a million dollars a day mm. and he got paid a million dollars in advance. And I then, thought it was a week. 
I, no, I think it was a day. It was something a week would be just as bad, though. Yeah, I mean, not great either way. <laughs> like, but he was Certainly. being paid a, a horrendous amount of money to then show up on set and say, "Let's, this is fucked. Let's redo it." Without did you, you know, did you see the documentary on Netflix now about the Island of Doctor Moreau movie he made? No, I didn't know there was that great documentary yeah. called Lost Soul. Um, it's the Richard Stanley one that never came about. Well. It happened, but, you know, Richard Stanley was fired right. with Val Kilmer and Brando. And the, the documentary is good. It's not great because I think they're a little hard on John Frankenheimer, who was the director who came in to finish mm -hmm. it. But the stories are just, it's the it's long been, they've said it was like the craziest film shoot in Hollywood history. But nobody had ever compiled the stories before, so it's the first time you get to hear them all at once. I'm glad that's out there. Yeah. And um, Kilmer was probably worse than Brando because Kilmer was just a shithead. But Brando is fucking nuts. And there's this part where Feruza Balk is talking about how um, she came to set and she's in the movie and she has like every scene with Brando. So she was like, um, can we talk about our characters together? And this was another one of those movies where Brando came on and said, no, I'm going to fix everything. This is what we have to do. We have to do this. We'll make it all better. You know, we need this change, this change, this change. And Brando tells her, he's like, listen, none of this shit makes any sense. It's a shit movie. You look beautiful. You're doing fine. We're getting paid. It's fine. And then she was like, well, I'd just like to talk about how our characters relate to each other. And it, apparently he was just like, nah, don't worry about it. So like there's this sense of Brando as like this struggling, you know, Orson Welles type genius who was just the best, trying to do the best for every movie. I don't think that was true. Well, but I think so, in some ways he was just a prick. But then you listen to him tell it, right? And that's what yeah. I'm saying is like that, it, you know, if you really look at Apocalypse Now, Coppola didn't have an ending for that movie. No. And, and Brando fucking killed it. He is amazing in that movie. But I think Brando that he didn't develop that ending. Coppola's wife developed that ending. But he, he Brando had a, I mean, he, if he did what he said he did, which I, why not believe him, that he came in with hours of this sort of recorded tape, which, I, which I've long heard, you know, and then also yeah, talked about how to finish it. Reciting um, T.S. Eliot poems, which they had all told him to do anyway. But, and it was just the golden bow in T.S. Eliot, which was so far in advance what they were working on that script. I mean, Jack Hill and uh, Coppola were talking about the golden bow since like 66. And um, and he didn't even read Heart of Darkness, Brando. They told him right. to read it. And he was like, nah. What he did was he recorded some poems and but then so, said, I did so all the work. Who's right? Is the, What I'm getting to finally, after being interrupted multiple times by John D'Amico, is <laughs> this point of like, you know, I, I, you wonder in the end, like, where, where is the truth between somebody who really, two people that have no reason to lie, mm -hmm. especially Coppola, you know, I mean, like. They both have reason to lie. Well, they both have reason to, to feel like they, they made it. But I do think that, like, you know, it doesn't mean that one person is outright flat out lying. I mean, You're like, saying Brandon, it probably just lies in the middle. Like, yeah, this. you know, like yeah. I, it's, it, and it's interesting, you know, because then you have Brando who that if you watch that documentary about him, it's very, very nice to him. Very yeah. nice. You do not, you know, and of course, you know, there's kind of some moments that are, are, are sad and, and funny and, and, and sweet. I mean, like he his his image of himself and I don't doubt it is that, you know, he is still like, you know, this sort of shy hero. Yeah. And that's absolutely, yeah, I that. and it's very, yeah. he was always insecure. And, and he was always tormented by the attention. Sure. And I mean, like, you know, it's, so you can, you can see it, you know, like, and, and it makes sense. But then again, what he thought was like shy, tormented, everyone else was said like, fuck this guy. I wouldn't ask. Yeah. You know, he ruined mm -hmm. my movie. He wasted my money, blah, blah, blah. 
So it's like in the end, like, you know, I, I almost feel like this, the, the background for Buffalo 66 of like yeah, what I read, I wonder, like it makes me to wonder. Gallo feels like, yeah, he's talked about movies he's worked on and like uh, he, he definitely is like that, sh- that shy introvert. But also I wanted to bring up also, did you find it funny? Because for me, it's like, it's a great comedy. I'm trying to th- so well. My question to you is: is what what do you like so much about it? I think it's hysterical. Like it's it's one of those movies where it starts off very dreary, um, but I think he he achieves a sort of like Chaplin like tragedy comedy kind of thing throughout it. Like you know, you see him like laying on the uh, the bench in the beginning, and it's just this like very pathetic image. And like your initial reaction to it is like, oh, you know, like this is like a you know, we're supposed to feel sad for this guy or whatever. But then like, as it goes on, he's just like this very ridiculous, funny character. Like I love the shifter car scene. That's one of my favorite things ever. Like I don't drive shifter cars, you know? Right. Yeah. And they have to get out. Like, yeah. I, there, there's so many funny, like comedy I like, beats. I like the, the photo booth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great scene. But you know what? It kind of reminds me of it. It's the same humor as that one scene in the room where, uh, what's her face calls Mark. She's like, I miss you. He's like, I just saw you like that. <laughs> like that seems to be what their romance is like. I but, think it's hysterical. Like I, the thing that I thought that you would actually really dig too is uh, like the little side characters throughout, like the bowling alley guy. I had a feeling you'd really dig oh, the, yeah, bowling I like the bowling guy. alley guy. Yeah. That's Jan Michael Vincent. He was like a good guy. He had to kept, keep like feeding him the lines because he couldn't remember them whatsoever. Cause he's all fucked up on drugs and yeah. a car accident and this, that, and the other, I think. And so like that, him talking to him, the way that they have their little back and forth, it's because he, he keeps having to cue him and sort of stimulate his memory to remember what he's supposed to say. And I think the, the, the finished product with their interaction is just really, really good. Cause he, he, he just is that guy. He's that guy at that bowling alley. He's like, Hey man, like, how's it going? Like, Oh, I haven't seen you in a while. You're the champ. You're the best. You know what I mean? Right. Like he's, he just nails it so well, but it's, it's half of it is just him not being fully there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, he, he was like hardcore realistic. I love uh, when they go to Denny's, the guy that seats them, the guy who has like makeup on his face and has like a uh, like a walking stick and sit, seats oh, them yeah. at Dan- Denny's and like the guy that rents them the room when they when they go up to the, the motel room and he's like saying the thing is like, all right, well, you know, stay is like one night and there's no smoking and like he's just going through like his thing. I, I love those little side characters. I love the guy that doesn't let him pee in the place. I love the whole arc of him needing to pee. Yeah, that I, I was love all those, those those really funny things. So because when we were talking about it, it seemed like you were talking about it like a drama. But for me, it's like a it has a look of like a gritty, like sad thing. But there's so much funny stuff in it. I recognize the funny stuff. I don't know that anything made me laugh out loud. But as you talk about it, that's like that's what I'm saying is like I, I, I this is the type of movie I'm going to need like maybe like a month to like think about whether maybe. or not I think it's like funny or dramatic. I sort of took it very seriously. The brownies stuff. That was funny. His little childhood self. I don't eating remember chocolate. That at all. Oh, and he gets like that didn't do it for me. No, I felt bad funny. about his dog, yeah. <laughs> but it's handled so funny. His, I didn't like his mother. Uh, what, uh, she was apparently Angelica. horrible to work with. She almost walked off set because he told Ben Gazzara that they were going to be shooting like a couple hours later 
before he told her like she wanted to be that she he told her before like it was all this like weird like diva stuff yeah i never heard that about her before in anything yeah he mostly got along with gazara and rourke from that shoot i could see that they were all tight and they all were like yeah we're cool and like there's a great youtube which video is funny where, because rourke apparently nobody can work with rourke yeah he's i mean a big part of the reason why he was out of movies for so long was just everybody hates him there's a youtube clip where uh, some fan is talking to rourke and he asks him about buffalo 66 and you see rourke's face just light up and you're <laughs> like man that was that was really fun like <laughs> i really like Vince gal he's he's great like you see him like his memory's just jogged and he's just going back to this like happy place so that's cute it seems like he had a lot of fun with that one I definitely, yeah, I like the the sort of artistic flourishes. I think that's what maybe I, I, I think it's worthwhile film for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it could have been one of those movies that like one direct, a director who only made one film and then like disappeared. Like, I think it would have yeah. even been better, but like I haven't seen his other movies, so I don't yeah. know if they get better or they get worse or whatever, but they're different. It's that type of movie that like, it's just sort of, it's so off and it's about Buffalo, you know, mm-hmm. like it's about this sort of like, strange time with a strange guy that you know probably is someone that you grew up with and all those all those real locations too like all those great shots inside of buffalo where you're walking into like buffalo is so cinematic and i can't believe more people don't shoot stuff up there all those old rust belt towns are just like Mm. there's like a lot of frank lloyd wright in buffalo too yeah like buffalo there's there's stuff there just dying to be shot he also he shot that on a, a film stock that hadn't ever been used for a film before he shot it on color reversal stock which was used for uh football like telecasts and he chose it because he liked the look of like old like football on tv and so he chose that film stock without ever knowing if he could even process it because apparently it was like impossible to process like the there just wasn't the facilities anymore and like he he shot the whole film and then he couldn't find anybody that could process the film. <laughs> I heard he shot it on like Super 8, but then transferred it to no, 32 no, no. or something. Okay. No, no, no. He, he colored reversal. Someone stock. like, I told someone I was going to watch it and that's what they told me. And I was like, what? I told you wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, no, uh, yeah. That wasn't Super 8. That's... Yeah. That's why watching it, I was yeah. like, no. Nah. <laughs> he, got, he got it developed and it was, was complete... color reversal. Was it 16 mil or was it 35? Uh, I think it was 16. He, yeah. he, he usually uses 16, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he got it developed completely unusable, like like just looking at whiteness. Like it was all totally fucked. Finally found a dude that could do it. I think they the dude needed like to repair like the parts on the machinery to do it. Like he a great thing too about Gallo is that he'll tell like very detailed technical like specification stuff in interviews. Like if he gets asked about that, he'll like he'll go into and then we had to get this part and then we had to do, you know, like he's <laughs> he's one of those guys. I like that a lot. Yeah. And uh, so he finally found the dude that could do it. Luckily, it was able to be printed. And, you know, we have the beautiful, very unique looking film today. Like you see like a lot of stuff in that film that like, you know, nowadays people are throwing Instagram filters to achieve. You right. know, and, like they never they never really look as good as the stuff that he he got in that film. I think it has a, it's such a interesting look to it. It's like you've seen it before, but you haven't seen it kind of thing. Does he right. ever DP anything that isn't direct? I don't think so. There's like a handful of directors that I would like to see just DP something. Yeah. Like him, Zack Snyder, and probably Harmony Corinne. Mm. I would like to see them just be DPs on another person. Well, Corinne has had some awesome... I mean, the DP he had for uh, Spring Breakers. Oh, my God, yeah. 
gorgeous. Oh he picks some some good. Yeah, DPs. Hey, he's. I'm not saying he's not a great yeah, filmmaker because yeah, yeah. uh, Spring Breakers is one of my favorites. But I'd I'd like to see what he could do just doing visuals for mm -hmm. someone else. Like I I'd be interested to see how his skill set applied there. it's funny like there are guys that have that like secondary talent too yeah. like uh like lucas he if you ever seen his storyboards like he he's a very good visual artist like his i uh, thought they had um what's his well, face they had, do all those they had tons of yeah that was more the concept art but if you look at the black and white um like his sketch storyboards yeah you're like holy shit this dude's like actually like a Spielbergs really are so bad <laughs> <laughs> Spielbergs, it's fucking stick so. figures that's hysterical yeah, Lucas, they they're fucking gorgeous. Like they could be like a independent comic. Like well, Kurosawa's he, were paintings. Mm -hmm. Kurosawa, when he was going blind doing Ron, um, just painted the whole movie mm. uh, on oils, and then just gave it to the DP and was like, "This is the shot I want." And Cameron too, doesn't he have really good? Uh, yeah, Cameron's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful artist. He uh, when. In Titanic, when they're drawing the picture of Rose, that's Cameron drawing right, it. Right, yeah. I he's totally he's a wonderful that. artist. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Because he started out, um, well, first he was a truck driver, and then he saw Star Wars, and he quit. <laughs> and he entered movies through um, production design. So he was a production designer for Roger Corman. And Bill Paxton was his assistant. So Battle Beyond the Stars is um, Cameron's designing the spaceships, and Paxton's helping build them, Man. I think was the story. They say Cameron... Um, did some of the effects for Escape from New York. The oh, wow. uh, wireframe computer model over the city. That would make sense. Which wasn't, it was too expensive to do that by computer. So that's a real model that they just covered the corners with reflective tape. Fuck. And they're pretty sure, I, I think that was Cameron, yeah. That's really interesting. He has a very interesting career, Cameron. He's, yeah. I think, he's the, maybe the only true polymath who's also a filmmaker. <laughs> I think he's an absolute genius in a lot of very strange fields. I mean, he built the camera they used to shoot Avatar. Yeah, exactly. It didn't exist, the stereoscopic camera he wanted, so he just constructed it, <laughs> which is now like the industry standard yeah, for absolutely. that shit. Yeah. yeah. All right, so what would you give it out of five, just to close it out, by the way? Just curiosity, just to get, for me to gauge your... Uh... I, gave, I think I gave it a three. Really? Meaning that it was, I thought it was enjoyable. Like, it could be three and a half for me, but I wouldn't go much further. All right. Because it didn't like, it didn't change my life. Like four for me means like I really liked it. Mm -hmm. Like I would be really happy to see it again. This one, like I would totally see it again, but it would have to be in like a couple years or something. You might see it with fresh eyes and see the comedy more. It's yeah, possible. Yeah, that's definitely happened before where like I see something like, you know, that's happened actually a lot. I tend to take movies seriously unless I go in knowing like this is a comedy. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it really screws over like my interpretation of the film. For me, the ending is one of my favorite like feel good endings of all time just that final scene where he's buying the cookie i love that interaction with those like non-actors and everything oh i love the guys just being like uh-huh yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's it's wonderful i love that scene but i didn't think it was feel good that's the thing oh, it's like i was feel good for me no nah, it it's adorable like, that scene i mean well you were like uh, he i don't know he reminds me of, of people i know that i don't like hmm. <laughs> all right where you're like this isn't gonna last all right you know? we're gonna take a uh, quick break we'll be right back with a voicemail and now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. I had a change of heart with Trainwreck. I've worked it so many times now that I've basically got it memorized. And um, now its run is finally over. Rip. And it did really well. But I find it really grating. 
But I think the reason why I find it grating is because it represents something that is very 2015 in an annoying way. And I think that people are going to look back in the future and be like, yeah, that that uh, definitely captured something of the time. It's weird because when I say I had a change of heart, I mean, since I don't have TV, I hadn't been watching Amy Schumer's show or anything. So for some reason, I got this impression of her at first that she was kind of Lena Dunham-like, and that's just not the case at all. It couldn't be farther from the truth. She's actually very different from her. If Lena Dunham does what Cody calls encourage women to be lost girls and to remain that way, Amy Schumer shows how embarrassing it is to be a lost girl and then shows them in pain from that and getting their shit together. I don't know if I would say I recommend it because it's not really that great or enjoyable. I just would say that I'm glad that it does what it does at the time that it's doing it. Thanks, Chloe. And now back to the show. All right, we are back. Here is a voicemail. Hi, this is Al Pacino from the 70s, the early 70s. I just wanted to know if you you have a miss when I used to talk like this and uh, what your thoughts about that might be. Okay, goodbye. All right, so that was Al Pacino from the uh, early 70s. This is the time travel episode. Calling in, yeah. Why does me? Yeah, do we can, miss? Do we miss when he used to talk like that? I miss Al Pacino oh, yeah. when he was a good actor. In yeah. fact, Al Pacino, call me. I'll give you my personal number after the show because yeah. I want to marry you. Yeah, I, I, I like that that little voice he used to have. He used to have a little baby voice. <laughs> That's like he can taxonomize it. That's like around Serpico, I would say. Yeah, because like in the Godfather, day. he's yeah. not quite there yet. No, he's a little it's, more. It's pre and post Scarface. Well, yeah, but I think you can make it even more granular than that. Scarface was when he started doing the yelling, but like Godfather, he doesn't quite sound the same as he does in Dog Day or Serpico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He starts to get into that. And then, like, Scent of a Woman is definitely, like, peak yelling Pacino. Scent of a Woman on, he's just doing the same one. Yeah, which is a shame, because he's so good in Scent of a Woman. That's yeah. an underrated movie. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, he uh, he also has, like, he reminds me of, uh, like, Bob Dylan, how, like, Bob Dylan is just a different Bob Dylan now. <laughs> like, Bob Dylan had, like, his babyish, like, uh, you know, cute little boy phase, and then uh, now he he's, like, I feel like you can put them next to each other, and they'd look like... Like similar uh, trajectories. I don't know. Maybe they also you look, look similar. Yeah. Yeah. If, I think if you look babyish like that, maybe you get to that point where you just want to be a gruff old man. Yeah. You know, like Clint Eastwood style. It's almost like he had another puberty. <laughs> like he, he just like some night he changed. Well, wasn't part of the thing with Dylan was um, blood on the tracks. Dylan, he had stopped smoking. And that's mm. why he sounds different on blood on the tracks. Isn't that right? Because he sounds way better on that than he does on anything else. That's true. Like with Tangled Up in Blue and Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. He doesn't sound like that anywhere else. Well, there with was Pacino, Memphis, uh, uh, Nashville Skyline. Uh, yeah. He's completely different. I think Bob Dylan's always, he's always changing. You know, like he, he was one of those guys. Always changing, man. Changing with the wind. <laughs> yeah, he plays with his cadence a lot. But like, I think just even the tone is different in um, Tangled yeah. Up in Blue. Yeah. But then he He's also sad. sounds different in like Hurricane than he does anything else. <laughs> we need a scholar on here. Have the Pacino, Al Pacino get, Bob get Dylan, Dylan to call. <laughs> we need Dylan. Dylan would be a good get, right? Yeah, nobody nobody yeah. has Dylan on their movie podcast. We can just ask him about his paintings. Or about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Yeah. That's true. Or studiously not ask him about that. 
you know, ask him about everything else except the movies he did. I'd like to know That's about... That's how you get him, I think. <laughs> I'd like to know about Mastin Anonymous, because he, he wrote that, but he didn't take a screenwriting credit. He used a, a, a pseudonym. You know, he has a movie script around floating for a movie based on Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts, hmm. and they haven't made it. That's interesting. I like the documentary that. that he that he directed. That was oh, supposed to be the yeah. Penn and Baker one. Eat the document. He directed yeah. it. And it's, yeah, it's good. It's got an interesting flow. Not as good as the Penn and Baker one, though. Oh. Man, Penn and Baker was something. I mean, come on, no comparison. But eat the document. It it got like this reputation. It's like, oh, it sucks. Like he just kind of like lazily put it together. But it's kind of like a fun flow to it. You could do, I think, like a great film festival of just sort of forgotten. 60s music documentaries mm. like that and let it be and like cocksucker blues and just all like the ones that the bands don't want you to remember anymore yeah. there were some great ones out there uh al, Pac I'm al pacino <laughs> guys you know wasn't there that documentary looking for richard or whatever did you guys ever see that where no. he, was, he was working on richard the third it's mostly just like him like talking at the camera and like living his life it's it's kind of like a fly in the wall pacino thing it's a little weird when you did know? he do richard the third uh, this must have been mid nineties, I would say. And, uh, interesting little documentary. It's on this, uh, set that's called like the Pacino actors set, which is now out of print, but it's, uh, it's that it's that movie Chinese coffee that he oh, like, I directed. Love that movie. It's um, Tim and Sam Watterson. That movie's yeah, phenomenal. There's another one called the local stigmatic where he does like a cockney accent, which I haven't actually seen that one, but I've heard bad things about this cockney, <laughs> uh, that accent. Amazing. Yeah, and it's a yeah, it's an out of print set. It's like one of those things. If you can find it, watch it. It's Pacino deep cuts. Chinese Coffee is a wonderful movie. If any of you are just looking for two of the great actors just hammering each other for like an hour forty five. Yeah, I've never seen in that the East one. Village. Just Chinese Coffee is great. I gotta check that one out. Did any of you ever see his Merchant of Venice? No, he's I heard good things. Awesome. I heard good things. Yeah. He's so good in it. I mean, the movie's like man, but he's just phenomenal. Yeah. What I tried recently, which I could not get through, was this movie, The Humbling, that he did, a Barry Levinson film, like, a, I guess a year ago. With It's him and uh, Gret, Greta Gerwig. So, yeah, I could not get through the first five minutes. I had a hard time with Birdman when I, when I watched Birdman, and it makes Birdman look like my favorite movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's a similar, like actor going through a thing talking to himself like hallucinatory thing that they try in like the first five minutes of it but it's just so bad and it's just there's no two ways about it it just doesn't work did you ever see the faye dunaway one of those in like 1970 no i forget what it's called but she's like an actress and she's semi going through a nervous breakdown and it's shot in this really cool like half experimental style well, I like opening night a lot. The Jenna Rollins one. Yeah. That, that one, I think, was really pulled well, off well. I mean, Rollins could do anything. Of course. You know, you'd be into it. The Dunaway one, though, it, it's sort of, um, it wasn't even Puzzle of a Downfall Child. That's mm. what it's called. It wasn't even oh. popular at the time, but it's it's good. Yeah, and you Roy posted in it. on our Twitter the um, uh, Shots We Love, hashtag Shots We Love, if you guys didn't know about sure. that. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you posted this great still from that, which made yeah. me want to watch the movie because it was so awesome looking. Yeah, it's a wonderful little movie. It's very strange. It's, it's, it's probably a better version of Play It As It Lays than the movie Play It As It Lays, hmm. which was also really good. Underrated movie, but Puzzle of a Downfall Child, I, I think is really underrated. And it, it does that sort of Play it as it lays, Joan Didion thing about this woman who's just very accomplished externally and internally is just destroyed by being a part of this 
fucking miserable, sexist 70s LA society. Mm. It's a really good movie. And that's Schatzberg, right? Yeah. Who also did Scarecrow, my favorite Al Pacino ah. movie. Ah, Scarecrow's bringing it great. back full circle. What's your, favorite? What's your favorite Pacino? Uh, Send a Woman. I got Dog Day. It's yeah, it's neck and neck dog with day. Dog Day. I uh, I guess I think Dog Day is his, is his best performance for me. But uh, Scent of a Woman, I watch that like every year. Like I just great. I started watching it because I was like making fun of it, kind of because I, it's it's a very uh, weird performance from him. It's broad. It's very broad. But the more I watch it, the more I like legitimately loved it. Like I was I was poking fun at his acting at first, but now I'm like, you know, he really does a really good job with that character in that film. Like that's a that's a character yeah. that you really know by the end of that film. And yeah, it's broad, but the guy is broad. You know, it's like that and is way good. I was always a big fan of it. Devil's Advocate. Never saw that one. Devil's Advocate is real good. Hmm. Did you see that one? Yeah, that's no. with Keanu, right? Yeah. It's it's the best of that like 90s, like clean corporate devil mm. sort of thing. Oh, that yeah. came out around the time of like Meet Joe Black. It feels like there was like a devil. It was 97. There was like a sure. devil push around yeah, the late and, 90s. Um, and and uh, What Dreams May Come was right around then too. Yeah. And End of Days, which... Yeah. <laughs> end of Days, man. A lot of devils. End of Days was probably the worst of those movies, but I think Gabriel Byrne was the best devil in the 90s. Interesting. Gabriel Byrne is so fucking good in um, End of Days. I don't know I've ever really seen End of Days. What was that Christopher Walken movie where he's Satan? No, he's Gabriel. There's th- there's like three prophecy? of them. The prophecy? Yeah. <laughs> but there's a really good Satan. It's um, what's his face from Lord of the Rings? I, I clearly don't remember anyone's name right now. Aragorn plays Satan. Oh, Vigil Morgenstein, yeah, as they Vigo, call him Vigo in uh, Always Sunny. <laughs> yeah, Viggo Morgenstein. When did he play Satan then? He plays Satan in the first prophecy for about five minutes. Oh, wow. And he go, and he says very specifically, I love you, I love you, I love you more than Jesus. <laughs> uh, I like that. It's great. That movie's not bad. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, Devil's Advocate, I, I always liked that one. It's very... 97 oh yeah you know it's very the millennium is coming <laughs> so it was end of days which i have such mixed feelings about end of days <laughs> like end of days i think has some of the the scenes i remember most from childhood mu- movie watching mm. and you think well these were cool it's got to hold up and then you watch it and like the rest of the movie is garbage sack mm. and you like can't even get through it <laughs> that was the movie that uh guns and roses reunited for to do a song on the soundtrack oh, jesus God bless. Yeah. What a what a product of its time. <laughs> God bless end of days. <laughs> All right. We're going to close it out here. Any uh, final thoughts from any of y'all before we uh, skedaddle? I want to hear um, John's final thoughts on this book that's under his uh, shoulder yeah, right now. Yeah, he came in here talking. I came in hot. Yeah. He was <laughs> he was upset. He had a book in hand and he was he was not having a good time. I've been reading this book about the fall of Rome. Because, you know, I don't really know a lot about the fall of Rome. I know a lot about the Greeks, and I know a lot about the Middle Ages, but the the, the end of the Roman era is kind of a historical blind spot for me. So I was like, all right, let me let me get the best one I can get that's like under 400 pages, because I got a lot of crap I got to read. Right. So I picked up this one called The Fall of Rome <laughs> and the End of Civilization. And it starts out, and it's real good. Who's He's, the author, brother? Uh, the author is Brian Ward Perkins from Oxford. It's an shout Oxford University to, uh, Press. Shout out to Brian Perkins. <laughs> it's like 100 pages, so it's real good. It's talking about, you know, like, 
his whole thing, which I don't actually disagree with, is that writings now are a little light on how violent times like this, when there is a cultural upheaval, were. Mm-hmm. So specifically saying, like, people now say the, the fall of Rome was, like, not that bad. You know, the Germanic tribes came in, and it was really just an institutional administrative change, and everything was fine. And he's like, that's not right. So he's going, and for, like, 50, 60 pages, he's pulling up these amazing and, like, really haunting stories about, like, lives that were destroyed mm. when Rome fell. Like, these groups of these nuns that were, like, all impregnated by, like, Visigoth tribesmen and like the the story of like the bishop trying to figure out what to do like theologically about this and these really interesting and like small unique very personal stories about how the fall of Rome affected and changed and destroyed lives then about halfway through he starts to talk about pots <laughs> and he's talking about pots as sort of a measure of archaeological um like the the health of a nation which is very interesting. I didn't really know anything about this, but he's saying that the, the Romans were so globalized and they had such a great economy that they had production facilities that made these pots that they didn't have pots this good again until like the 1700s. Hmm. And they were sending them, you know, like across the empire. So you would have like a dude in, in like Florence or whatever who had his pots from Britain and his tableware from France and, you know, Spain and everything. And it was all... Living large. Food, yeah, his food was coming from Germany. It was a yeah. truly globalized economy. And he said that you can see the fall of Rome was a cultural disaster because the pots got really terrible immediately. (laughs) It was handmade pots that weren't made on a wheel anymore. Really interesting. Then he doesn't stop talking about pots. (laughs) And he keeps talking about how we don't appreciate pots enough. And he's talking about how, like, there's one line where it's like, you can't even understand the beauty of a Roman pot. (laughs) And he starts getting real nasty about the Anglo-Saxon pots and like how garbage their pots were and they like weren't fit for a king and like this and that. And this is going on for a long time. This is probably 40 pages of just this man's personal love for like ancient pottery. Guy loves pots. Which is cool. the fall of pots. If you want to write a book about pots, you write your book about pots and I'll probably read it and be like, well, that's interesting. But like, I'm trying to get back to Rome. Because some of these stories were left hanging. And, and he's talking about how, you know, like the Ozagoths or whatever, like had a whole different system than the Visigoths in there and there. And I was like, all right, let me, what is it? Let me, let me get at it. Let's, let's go. And he's talking about how, like the East never fell. And I'm like, just give me, give me it. But he's talking about pots instead and he won't stop. And then, and then he stops. I'm like, all right, back to work. So there's this chapter called the end of civilization. I'm like, finally, civilization, it's going to end. We're in it. It's going to happen. But instead, he starts talking about how American scholars don't appreciate empires enough. <laughs> and how, like, historically, we're just in this era where, like, everybody's down on the idea of an empire. And he's talking about how, like, in America especially, they place too much emphasis on the role of religion in the lives of the people of the Middle Ages. Which, like, first of all, fuck you. <laughs> Second of all, no, they don't. Third of all, you're talking about the end of Rome. Do, do Rome. Yeah. Don't do the middle, middle ages. You're not talking about that. <laughs> and then he starts talking about like Star Wars and how <laughs> Star Wars is proof that Americans don't understand the value of an empire. All right. I know. I'm, I'm riveted. Yeah. But then he just won't let it go. <laughs> and I'm like flipping to the end and I'm like, all right, I got like 40 pages. Left, man, you got to get me <laughs> yeah, back. He's- you got to get me. I don't know what's happening in France right now. And he'll put in all these like little tantalizing details. He'll be like, and then things in 
Turkey and the Levant were very different from the situation in Spain and France. And then I'll just leave that. <laughs> I'll be like, but I, I got this thing. I mean, I probably could have guessed they were different. <laughs> I just I just need to be told how they're different. Right. And then it ends. And it just sort of dribbles off. And I'm like, all right. And there's an appendix. And I'm like, okay. Maybe this will give me something. So I open it to the appendix. And it's just about pots again. Oh, no. And it's three pages of pots. And it's these big maps of, like, where pots are. And, like, and he has these little illustrations in the book. And they're a riot. Because there's one where he's talking about money. And, like, how much coinage was in the Anglo-Saxon versus the Roman economies, which very interesting, I guess, sort of signpost for, you know, how much trade was happening. Hmm. But there's no numbers on the graph. There's numbers on the years. It's like, you know, 300 to 600. Right. And then it just has at the very top the word, I think it was substantial. And then at the bottom, the word minimal and nothing in between. And this is like a line. Oh, my God. And it's like what a, like a little kid would make. You couldn't hand that into a teacher. No, you couldn't hand that into a middle school teacher. So this is a Cody's theory was that this was just like a blog that got published, right? Well, I the way he was talking about it, I was like, you sound like you you found some weird blog. And yeah. you read a blog, not a book. It reminds me of the Time Cube blog from yeah. back in the day. It doesn't sound like a book. It sounds like some guy's blog. And I think it's some dude who's like a well-known scholar. And then like he's at the end of his career and he's just shitting this out. Like he just, yeah. now he just wants to rant. It sounds like a contractual obligation. Right. Yeah. We were saying like, maybe it's like his metal machine music and he just <laughs> didn't care. But it's so weird because there's one point where he's he's like very into talking about America, but you know, it's just not stick to pots because you know it. <laughs> right. So like, there's this one part where he's talking about how like, well, all the scholarship that in America is anti-empire, it's coming from the Eastern and Western um, intelligentsia. And it's not coming from the Bible Belt, which is the real America, which first of all, eat shit. Second of all, <laughs> he names one name and I forget the guy's name, but I like Googled him because I was like, all right, let's see what this guy's about. And yeah. this is the guy who's saying is, you know, like the, the East Coast intelligentsia. The dude went to University of Arizona <laughs> and is now a teacher at Lancaster Seminary in Pennsylvania, a oh, theological man. school. <laughs> and that's his boy who is like, this guy's, you know, like the, the Harvard USC, you know, the, I can't, it's just the strangest book I've ever read. So what are the reviews on this book? Did you check that out? There were a lot of people who were like way on board with it, I huh. guess, you know, and then there are a few there's a lot of negative reviews, but I think they're negative reviews mostly in the way that mine are, where they're not like total pans. They're mostly just like, I'm confused. <laughs> and there's a lot of reviews that were like, well, you know, I was really interested in some parts of these books, some parts of this book and in some chapters. And then like, he just never finished them. Right. I, I, and he doesn't. What I think happened was there's a, there's, it's sort of in part one and part two. And part one is kind of the good part. I'll bet he wrote part one and then he got a lot of like feedback about it and it made him mad. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote part two, which is his like, <laughs> well, fuck you guys. It seems almost like a book handed in knowing that they're not going to read it. They're just going to publish it. Yeah. Like, and that he can just yeah. write whatever he wants. It's like 200 pages, though. I mean, you could have gone to 300, kept all your pot stuff, kept the Star Wars <laughs> stuff, and just like given me more you of gotta the Fall loop of Rome. Back. Yeah, you got to loop back. I love that it's called The Fall of Rome, and it's about <laughs> what you described. If anybody has a good book about The Fall of Rome, Please. or even a good book yeah. about pots, 
Just let me know. Tweet, yeah, he's tweet. begging for it. At SmugFilm. Tweet, yeah. voicemail, send yeah, leave, info. Leave me a voicemail. Leave me some excerpts if you have them. Yeah. Because now I'm la- now I'm wary of them, you know, and I want to make sure it's a good one. Yeah. So yeah. anything about the fall of Rome, anything about an archaeological approach to, to pots as a measure of civilization. There's no limit on I'm our in. voicemail, right? No. Yeah, come on. Leave us, read a whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> We'll play it. We'll play it. Probably will be plagiarism, but we'll probably Whatever. get in trouble, but we'll play an excerpt. I don't know. What am I saying? Jenna, any any final thoughts before we ski dad? I had thoughts, but I can't beat that. So I'm Right good. on. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon.